listening on radio, that was Sharon Cheney, our esteemed pianist here at First Church. I want to welcome you and those listening on radio to our worship service this morning at First Church. Before we get started with our worship service this morning, I have several announcements. Today from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. in the church social room, there will be a fundraiser lunch that will benefit Shannon Redeger's mission trip. Tickets are still available at the door. They are $6 for adults and $3 for children five and under. Agape is in the process of starting their winter coat drive. This is a drive where they distribute coats for free of charge to the needy in our area. If you have a several coats or whatever and they're in reasonable condition, you can bring them to the church and we have a barrel in the heritage room where you can drop them off. Last announcement that I have is that on Sunday, November 13th, we will be receiving new members into our church. If you have an interest in joining the church or would just want some information on what that process may be, you can see Pastor Joel or call our church office. There are numerous other announcements in your bulletin. I encourage you to take the time to look them over and see if any of them would be of interest to you. And now to start our worship this morning... Would you please stand and join me in our call to worship? It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness in the night, to the music of the ten-string lyre and the melody of the harp. How great are your works, O Lord! How profound your thoughts! You, o Lord, Our opening hymn this morning is taken from the Blue Hymnal, number eight. Praise to the Lord, 
the Almighty. be seated. And now will the children come forward for the children's chat with Mrs. Lammers. Good morning. Oh, let's try that again. Good morning. Oh, that's better. That's much better. So, what did I bring with me today? A hammer. Okay? So, who uses a hammer? Who uses a hammer, Evan? A worker guy? Yeah, a worker guy's going to use a hammer. Okay, well... Do you know, a hammer has two parts. It has the face, this part, and it has the claw, okay? And the face we use to hammer a nail into a board, right? Okay? Now, the claw part we use to pull that nail out, okay? So, people are kind of like this hammer, Okay? People are kind of like this hammer. People can use the face of it to be a knocker. Okay? You use it and you knock. Okay? Or you can be a puller. 
okay, where you pull the nail out, okay? Someone who is a knocker is someone who is knocking people all the time. Well, that's not very good. Why did you do it like that? Oh, I don't like that. Okay? They're a knocker. They're, they're, they're putting people down all the time. Okay? But other people are pullers. Okay? They're pulling. They're looking for the good things in everybody. They're pulling you up. They're making you feel good. Hey, that was a good try. Hey, there's always next time. Wow, you look really nice today. Okay? So, as we go out in the world, we need to decide, are we going to be a knocker? Are we going to be that person whose glass is always half empty, who is always negative? Are those kind of people fun to be around? No, they're not. They're not fun to be around. Okay? Or are you going to be a puller? Are you going to be that person that looks for the good things in everybody? Yeah, that's the kind of person we want to be. We want to look for the positive things. And it's raining out, and you can't go outside and play. But that's okay. We can draw a picture. Or we can build a, a, a building. True. Or we could play video games. But only on rainy days, Evan. Okay. So, we want to think about that. You know, I never thought of a hammer like a person where I could be a knocker, where I'm constantly putting people down, or I could be a puller where I'm lifting people up, okay? So let's be a puller. Let's find ways to find the good things in everything because life is a whole lot more fun when we're a puller than when we're a knocker, okay? Let's say a quick prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these children Thank you for their energy and their enthusiasm. Help us this week as we go out and we encounter life. Help us to be knockers, not to be knockers, to be pullers. We want to be pullers, Lord. Help us to find the positive things in everything and in everyone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Have a great week. Thank you, Maria. What a great word of encouragement for our kids and also for us, too, as well, definitely. Uh, before we go to the Lord in prayer, uh, I just want to say a thank you uh, to our, our newly formed visitation team. I know several of you out there are part of that, and, and uh, many of you listening on the radio have, have maybe been encouraged by a visit uh, because you're not able to be with us on Sunday mornings. Uh, but I just want to say thank you to those who are volunteering their time to go out and visit our shut-ins and our nursery home uh, people in our nursing homes, and also maybe simply just some people that could that, that would appreciate a visit. You know, uh, We're just so grateful. One of the important things that, that we can do as Christians is encourage each other and lift each other up, and this is one of the ways to do it. Um, I just want to just say a story I heard. Uh, one of the members of our visitation team had stopped by the office the other day, uh, and he was just sharing about the experience that he had. He, w- he had gone to a nursing home and was visiting some members there, and, and he said he's planning on staying for an hour and he stayed for three. And, and he just, he said, and the surprise, he, not surprising, he said, and I enjoyed it. You know, he really enjoyed that time that he got to spend with people. And so um, I'm grateful for you who have volunteered your time to go out and visit um, on the visitation team. And for the, the many of you who I'm sure go out and visit people um, without needing prompting like that. Uh, but we appreciate your, your time and your effort. And many of the names that you see here on your concerns list are people that we can be visiting and, and especially be praying for. So uh, let's go to the Lord now at this time and, and pray that uh, God would God would work uh, in, in these people's lives. Father, we are grateful for, for the way that you equip us to do ministry. Uh, and Lord, that, that is not a necessarily a big or scary thing, Lord, uh, ministry, but it's often just a way that we can encourage each other. Um, Lord, it's, it's the ministry of this church and the ministry of, of your people to encourage and build each other up. Um, and Lord, that happens here on Sunday mornings in our Sunday school classes and, and the things that happen at this church throughout the week. But it also happens in in people's homes as we visit each other, as we encourage each other, as we see each other um, at the grocery store, at the gas station, um, at work. Uh, Lord, uh, I pray that you would help us to always remember those 
who are in need. Uh, help us to remember to be caring and lifting up our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who, may, uh, who may need that extra encouragement or may need just a, a, word, of, a word of encouragement, Lord. Uh, we do lift up these concerns to you now. I uh, pray that you would be with them. Uh, Lord, whatever it is they need, uh, you know. Uh, we trust fully that your goodness and your grace will reach each, to each one of them. And so we commit their, their lives and their situation into your hands and pray that your will would be done in each of those situations. Uh, whether it's healing, uh, we pray that healing would come. If it's simply uh, encouragement or, or, or another kind of situation, Lord, uh, we pray for that as well. Uh, Lord, above all and through all these, we pray that you would get the glory and that your will would be done. Um, Lord, that's what we pray for as we, as we lift these people up, that your will would be done. We often think that we know what's best. We often think that we uh, know what needs to be done, Lord, and we try to tell you what to do. Uh, but, Lord, we are praying now as, as your body here in, at First Church. Um, we lift up our prayers to you as one and ask that your will would be done um, and not our own. And in doing that, Lord, we know that you work all things together for the good of those who love you. You've been called according to your purpose. And so we put our trust in that, that your will is what's best for us. And so we pray all these things in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I invite those who are helping with the offering to come forward at this time. And, and again, we are grateful to have the choir here uh, this morning to lead us in song during this moment of our worship.
You may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to open those up to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you, as you always have obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in the order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped or crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's stand and together sing another song of praise. The words are printed in your bulletin. seated. Today we're again continuing our journey through the book of Philippians, our chapter 2 verses 12 through 18, which you just heard read for you a moment ago. Um, And this this passage immediately follows, uh, of course, the one that we looked at last week, which which has this beautiful Christ hymn, as it's often called, uh, right there in the middle of chapter 2 verses 6 through 11. This passage that we looked at that describes Christ's humility and his obedience to the Father and, and him coming to this earth and living among us 
as, as a human. And not just that, but, but submitting himself and becoming obedient even to death on the cross. And it was through that obedience, through that humility, that he was exalted. Um, and that one day we will all acknowledge his lordship. Uh, as Christians, we already acknowledge that, right? As followers of Christ, we acknowledge that he is Lord. But one day all of creation, all people of all time will, will come to that realization that he is Lord of all. And, and it's interesting, it's through these two characteristics uh, in this hymn that, that this is accomplished. It's through Christ's humility and it's through his obedience. Um, last week, we, we really focused on his humility and talked about how that is the key to unity in the church. That if we want to truly be united, if we want to be one as the body of Christ, we need to have that same kind of humility that Christ displayed in his, his earthly life and ministry. And even his death and his resurrection, that humility that Christ put on display. You know, we, it's about thinking of others as more important than ourselves, putting others' needs in front of our own. And in doing that, we will, we will finally learn what it means to come together as the body of Christ. Well, the other theme that is in this passage is obedience. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today in this passage. This, this idea that Christ was not only humble, he not only, uh, lowered himself, uh, in this way, but he also did it in obedience to the Father's will, that it was God's desire for him to come to this earth and to die and to rise again. Um, and it's through Jesus submitting himself to God's will that he was able to accomplish that. And so what Paul is doing in this passage is he's calling the Philippian church to that same kind of obedience that Jesus displayed in his earthly life, his death and his resurrection. Paul is saying, just like Jesus was humble and we should therefore be humble in order to have spiritual unity, we also need to be obedient in order to accomplish that same kind of unity, that same kind of conduct and, and lifestyle that Jesus displayed for us. Obedience leads to our sanctification, and specifically in how we interact with our fellow believers. And it's through our obedience that we will be a light for Christ in a world that is lost in darkness. That's the, that's the point that Paul is making here for us in this passage. And really it's a continuation of that theme that we looked at several weeks ago. Uh, chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul encourages the Philippian church to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. If you notice in your Philippians booklets, uh, I hope many, I hope you all have one of those. Uh, we had those available, and I believe there's still some available by the, at least I know by this exit, I know there's a basket of them still over there. So if you haven't gotten one or if you lost yours, you know, feel free to pick, it, pick one up. Um, it's a great place to follow along with the series. But in that booklet, I mentioned that that chapter 1, verse 27 is really a key verse for this whole book, that this theme of conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel will continue to, to pop up over and over again. And, and we're again seeing it here uh, in the way that Paul encourages the Philippian church to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is by being obedient. And so we see here in these opening verses, he says, therefore, again, when you see the word therefore, you ask, what is the therefore therefore, right? What is it doing there? It's connecting this passage to the previous section. So basically he's saying in response to this, in response to what Christ has done, in response to the kind of lifestyle that Christ lives, we should then uh, live that same way. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, uh, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You see, it's Paul is this reminder, this as you've always obeyed, he's speaking to his dear friends. It's a reminder that, that Paul isn't speaking to strangers here. Right? He's not he's not writing to a group of people he's never met and he's, you know, confronting them with some hard truth. He's speaking here to his friends. He's speaking here to fellow believers, people that he has worked alongside and has known and is encouraged by, and people that he dearly cares for, as we looked at in previous sections. And so this word is, is not, for, um, not for unbelievers, it's not for people who don't know the truth, but it's for people who have, who have been obeying, people that have known the truth, have, have already committed themselves to Christ, and are trying to continue on in that direction. It's a reminder here that Paul is speaking to his believers and his friends and encouraging them toward the truth. And so Paul is asking them to obey, um, in a sense, the teaching and the way of life that he passed on to them. In a sense, Paul was their pastor. He was their first pastor that they knew, and now at this point he has, 
he has gone on and, and Paul really served as he was kind of half pastor, half missionary, right? He would go into a certain town and region and he would plan a church and he would stay there for a while. And once once the church kind of got going, he would then move on to another place. And so Paul had these had these churches in different areas and Philippi was one of them. And so he was he was, in a sense, their pastor and encouraging them to follow his example, to follow the teaching that he put forth. Now, to clarify, Paul isn't asking them to follow his own personal wishes, right? Paul is not saying, do what I say because of, because of who I am. He's saying, do what I say, do as I taught you, not because of me, but because of Christ, because of the gospel, right? Paul is encouraging them to follow the Lord by following his example. And we see this in another one of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth, First uh, Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. That's chapter 14, not chapter 4. Sorry about that. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Again, you see his care and compassion for his church. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life. In Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So you see there's this command that, that they should follow him because he is following Christ and the lifestyle and the teaching that he passed on. And, and later on in that same letter in First Corinthians eleven, chapter one, or excuse me, first Corinthians chapter eleven, verse one, he makes it even more clear. He says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that's what Paul is, is instructing the Philippian church to do. He's asking them to obey, not out of his, some sort of selfish ambition or, or some sort of idea that Paul thinks that he deserves it in and of himself. He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow my example as I try to, try to set an example for you and a model for you in the way that I live, in the way that I taught. And so that's what Paul, Paul had set the example, and now he's, he's asking the Philippian church to follow him in that example. And the way that they do this, he says, to work out their salvation. It's this paradox, really, that, that Paul puts forth, right? Which is it? Are we, uh, in verse 12, he says, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And then in verse 13, he says, it's God who works it out in you. So which is it, right? Is it, is it that we somehow work out our salvation and by our own effort and by our own will, we, we accomplish this salvation for ourselves? Or is it simply just an act of God? God does it and we're just these passive kind of, uh, you know, passive machines in this process that God just doesn't. We have no choice in the matter. Um, I know you're probably not going to like this answer, but I'd say both. Right. The answer is not one or the other, but it's both. Uh, the answer lies in our understanding of what what justification and sanctification really mean. And those are, you know, two uh, church words. I try not to throw throw church words out like that all the time, but I think they're important for us to, to talk about. Um, you hear Paul talk a lot about justifying and, and being in salvation. Uh, justification is the status of innocence that God confers on a believer and a condition of peace that God initiates with him or her. So in other words, it's, it's this idea of justification is that we're either guilty or not guilty. There's really no in-between. So we, we're either, we've either um, been declared innocent or been declared guilty. And so when we are justified before God... It's the sense that we've been declared innocent, not guilty. And it's an instantaneous transaction. It's, it's a one moment you're guilty and next moment you're not. A lot of people talk about being saved in this sense. And that's what, that's what justification is talking about. It's our standing before a holy God that he is the one who, um, who justifies us. In, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses, verse 21, we see a great picture of what that means. Talking about Christ, Paul writes, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, it was, we have been found guilty, but, but because of what Christ has done for us, he has taken our punishment, and, and therefore we are no longer guilty. We have, he has taken our sin upon his shoulders, and he has given us his righteousness. It's this transaction that takes place, and so therefore we are no longer guilty before God. There's a pastor in, in England who, who leads a, um, a group called the Alpha Course. It's a, it's a ministry that, that is a, it's a ministry to try to re-engage people in the faith and reach out to people who don't know Christ. 
Um, and so it talks about a lot of basic ideas about what the faith is all about and what Christianity is all about. And he's talking about this idea, and he tells the story, and I think this is a great example of what God has done for us. He tells the story of two men who grew up together. They were friends uh, throughout their childhood, throughout school, and upon graduation, their lives took two very different directions. Uh, one of them uh, went on to college, went on to study, and became a lawyer, and eventually became a judge, and was very successful, very wealthy, very well-to-do, and and had made a very good name for himself. The other man went on to uh, fall on hard times, make some pretty poor decisions, and ended up leading a life of crime. And the second man found himself one day facing charges, uh, facing, uh, facing penalty. And so he's standing in court waiting to hear a sentence, and lo and behold, who should walk in but his, his old friend, you know, this person who's now a judge. And so the judge is finding himself in a predicament, right? He sees this person that he cares for, that he had lost contact with, and, and wonders, you know, uh, he, he wants to be able to help him, but at the same time, he can't, he can't deny justice because that is his position as a judge. And so what the judge decides to do is he sentences this friend of his to the appropriate penalty, a fine of, say, I don't know, $10,000, whatever it was. And so he, he enacts justice. He, he sentences his friend to this penalty hits his gavel, and the case is settled. And at that point, the judge gets up, takes off his robe, walks down off the bench to his friend's side and pulls out his checkbook and writes the check, pays the penalty for his friend. That's, in a sense, what God has done for us. That's what justification means, is that because of our sin, we've been found guilty. Because of our sin, we deserve the penalty. But Christ has done it for us on our behalf. God himself came down off the bench, right? He came down off his seat in the person of Christ and paid the penalty for us that we couldn't pay. Justice was still served. Justice is still done. But yet it's God's love and his motivation. The motivation for it is God's love toward his creation. And so justification is about our standing before God. We either guilty or not guilty. But then there's this other term, sanctification. And that's the ongoing process of becoming more like Christ. So justification is this instantaneous transaction. You're either guilty or not guilty before God. And then sanctification is this ongoing process that begins in that moment, but then lasts a lifetime. And it's about becoming more and more like Christ. It's never a thing that we will ever, we will ever arrive, right, in this life. We'll never get to a point where we can say, okay, I don't need to become any more like Christ. I finally made it, right? We'll never get to that point. But we'll always be working and striving towards, towards that. Charles Spurgeon, who was a popular preacher back in, back in the 1800s, speaking on this passage, he described about how we're like blocks of marble. And I've heard that when, when a sculptor sees a block of marble, when an artist sees this, this, you know, blank canvas, right, they have this, I've, I've, I, the, the Charles Spurgeon said that when a sculptor sees this block of marble, he sees the sculpture that's already hidden inside. Right? He has this vision of what it should look like and that, that when, as he starts to chip away at the marble, it's not that he is creating something, but he's just revealing what, what is already in there, in a sense. And so that's what we are. We are those blocks of marble, those blank canvases. And sanctification is a process of chipping away on at those things that shouldn't be there in order to reveal that, that image of God, the image of Christ that's already in us. You know, as we live our lives, we're not, we don't do these good things. We don't try to, we don't live out of this sense that we're trying to prove ourselves, that we somehow try to earn God's love. It's, it's when we are being sanctified, as we're living our lives in a way that honors God, we're doing it out of what God has already done for us. We're doing it out of the fact that there already is the image of God in us, that when we put ourselves in Christ, when we put our trust in Him, it says that we're a new creation, right? We've been made new, and that's already happened in us, and now we're just living out of that new creation. We still have junk, right, <laughs> in our lives. We still have marble that needs to be chipped away, but we're living out of that. And as we strive forward, as we work out our salvation, it's about chipping away at that marble. It's about doing the things in our lives that, that honor God and trying to remove the things in our lives that dishonor Him, it's not a command, this idea of working on our salvation with fear and trembling. It's not a command to work for or earn our salvation, 
but it's to strive to live a life that honors and confirms the salvation that we have already received. It's a recognition that at the end of the day, none of it would be possible apart from God's work in our lives anyways. So we can strive to to live a life that honors God. We can strive to, to do things that please him. But at the end of the day, it's still God enabling us to do those things. It's all, it's all starts with him and it ends with him. Second Peter chapter one, verses 10 through 11 says this, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority, bold and arrogant. Excuse me. I must have wrote, sorry, it's chapter one. I was, <laughs> my bad. I was like, where is this going here? Sorry about that. <laughs> chapter one, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort. See, this sounds a lot better. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that fits a lot better. All right. It says, make every effort to confirm your calling. So it's not about earning our calling. It's not about, about winning it in a sense, but it's about confirming it. It's about how if we, if we truly are saved, if we truly have been declared not guilty by God, if we've put ourselves in Christ, then our lives should reflect that. And that we should then desire to, in a sense, work out our salvation, to continue to strive to be more and more like Christ, in response to what he's already done for us. It's not possible to be justified apart from Christ's atoning death on the cross. It's not possible to be sanctified without the Holy Spirit's continuing work in our lives to help us to choose what is right and reject what is wrong. So we can try as hard as we want on our own, but without God, it wouldn't be possible to save ourselves. You know, when I, I grew up, I, I didn't grow up in the church. I know many of you here uh, have, have had the, the really a privilege of being born and raised right here in First Church. You know, baptized, confirmed, all the way up. And that's such, an, that's such a, a blessing. It, and it, to be honest, it's not one that happens very much anymore, right? Um, and I, I didn't grow up in the church in that way. I was about uh, 10 or 11 when I started going to church with my family and, and came to know the Lord uh, but at that time, you know, I always told myself I was a good person, right? I, I was always, I was always the good kid. I was a rule follower, you know, so I was always doing what was right. I already had this sense of rejecting what was wrong, you know, and so on a surface, it seemed like I didn't need God. It seemed like I had it all together, right? Even as a 10 year old, right? I thought I had it all together and knew what I was doing and everything was great. I wasn't getting in trouble at school. I wasn't, you know, having issues with my parents. Um, I was a good kid. But one of the things I realized as I came to know the Lord was that even my goodness wasn't going to save me. Right? Even no matter how hard I tried, no matter how good I was, apart from God, that still wasn't enough. Because it's not about how good we are, how bad we are. It's about what Christ has done for us. You know, we've all been tainted by sin. No matter how hard I try, I would still mess up. Right? And that no matter what I was doing in my life, I was still, no matter how good I was trying to live my life, I was still falling short of what God desired. And so it's not about, it's, it's not about how bad we are sometimes. Sometimes we need to be reminded that good people need saved too. That apart from Christ, we can't save ourselves. We do have the responsibility to either receive what God has done for us or reject it outright. God has done all the work. God has, God has paid the price He's come down off his bench and written a check that paid the penalty for our sins. All we need to do is receive whether or not we want to accept it. Or we, want to, we need to choose whether or not we want to receive it from the Lord. And that's why I want to encourage you all to, today to, to do. If that is something you have not done, if you have expected your good works or, or felt that, expected your good works to save you or felt that Christ could not love me because of the bad things I've done, God paid the price already. It's already been done. The price has already been paid. We simply just need to receive it. And so I encourage you to choose that today. Choose life. And so he goes on to talk uh, in this passage about more specifics. What does it mean to work out our salvation of fear and trembling? What are the results of that? Well, he gives a specific command here in verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. It's a hard command, isn't it? 
Sometimes it's just easier to give in to our bitterness and give in to our anger and just let it out. And to be honest, we do that in the church way too much. <laughs> we allow our, 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 our differences and our, our issues to come to the surface. And instead of working through them, instead of trying to find a way to work together, have that spiritual unity that we talked about last week, we often give in to our arguments and we start to complain and bicker. And, it, and, we, and we allow that to control our decisions instead of allowing the unity of the Spirit to overrule us. Um, this is probably, you know, the, the bickering and complaining and arguing and the grumbling. Those are, that's probably what, why Paul needed to write to the Philippian church about unity, because they were allowing their complaints and their arguing to divide them. And so Paul here talked about unity, but then he comes right out and says, we need to stop our grumbling and arguing. And it, and it may be easy to miss uh, if you're not familiar with the story, but, but what Paul is doing here is he's comparing the Philippian church to Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness. Uh, the same word for complaining in the Greek is the same word that's used for complaining in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. As Israel was wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, over and over again, they complained to Moses. And in a sense, were complaining to the Lord about their situation. And it didn't take them, I mean, they were barely across the Red Sea and they began to complain about how Moses had led them out in the wilderness just to die of starvation, right? They had nothing to eat, and so, so it would have been better for them to just simply die in Egypt than to be led out here in the wilderness and starve. And then once God provided them food, then they complained about how thirsty they were, right? And God had to provide them water. And over and over again for 40 years, these people just grumbled and complained and bickered, were bickering about, about the situation they found themselves in. And in the same way, the, the Philippian church, and we, if we're honest with ourselves, continue to do the same thing today. You know, God had miraculously provided for, for the Israelites. He had led them out of slavery in Egypt. He had, <coughs> excuse me, allowed them to cross the Red Sea on dry land. He had done all of these miraculous things for them. And yet they continue to bicker and complain about their situation. And yet we, we do the same thing as well. The Philippian believers and we stand in continuation with Israel. We are now, we are now the people of God, right? Just as they were. We, can, we are following in their footsteps. But the thing is, we, we want to learn from their mistakes. We don't want to continue their grumbling and continue the complaining that, that, that defined them in the wilderness. We want to choose a better path. We want to choose a way that, that rejects that sort of um, bitterness and embrace what God has for us. We want to learn from their mistakes. And there's two reasons that Paul lists here that we should do this. The first is that when we quit complaining, when we quit arguing, at that point we can shine like stars. If we're able to focus on our spiritual unity instead of our, the things that we disagree about, then we'll be able to make an impact in this world. We can only fulfill this purpose if we put away the discord and shine like stars. Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, one of Jesus' most famous blocks of teaching. In that passage, he gives a command to his disciples to be the light of the world. He says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, God, or Jesus commands his disciples to be the light of the world. To allow their lives, to, to, he, he commands them to live their lives in such a way that people will see and be able to not see themselves, but to see God shining through them. Jesus is the light of the world. And we're commanded to be the lights of the world. We're called to reflect the light that he has given us. The moon does not give off light in and of itself. Right? The moon itself does not shine. It simply reflects the light from the sun. In the same way, we're called to reflect God's light in our lives. We're called to live our lives in such a way, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that we shine and people will be able to see Christ in us. And in doing that, we'll be able to make a difference in this world and in this community. If you haven't noticed, you know, we live in, in times that don't, we have an opportunity 
We have an opportunity to shine like stars. We have an opportunity to, to put forth Christ in a world that does not always honor him and does not always lift him up. And so I encourage you to live your lives in a way that honors him. And so people will be able to see that and see Christ shining through you. The other reason why we should put aside our arguing and bickering is that, is that in doing so, we'll be able to finish strong. Paul will be able to boast that he did not run or labor in vain. Uh, Paul describes elsewhere, uh, he uses the analogy of athletics or sports to, to describe our journey of faith in this life. He talks about running the race to win and wanting to finish strong. There's, you know, as their pastor, Paul desired to see the Philippian church remain faithful and strong. And by giving in to their bitterness and giving in to their anger, they were not allowing themselves to do that. They were falling short of what God desired in their lives. And so by, by putting that stuff aside, by continuing to strive for, uh, to work hard towards their salvation, you know, work out their salvation in fear and trembling, they would be able to finish strong, be able to live a life that was not in vain, but be able to live faithfully for the remainder of the time that God has for them. You know, I, I fully believe that as we are, if you're here today, if you're listening on the radio, if you're still drawing breath, God has a plan for you. And God has a desire for you, right? And God has a purpose for you. Not everyone is called to stand up here and preach, and everyone is called to be in the choir and sing or, or whatever, but you are called to a purpose. God does have a plan for you. And he wants you to finish strong. We need to put aside those things that hinder us and, and focus on, on Christ and focus on how we can faithfully serve him for whatever time we have left on this earth. And finally, I want to read a passage for you from John chapter 17. Just so you know that as Paul is writing to the Philippian church, he's, writing, he's encouraging them to do exactly what Jesus encouraged his disciples to do on his last night on this earth. John chapter 17 is known as the high priestly prayer. It's, it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. And he prays for three, he prays for his disciples and he prays for the world. And it's in the garden of Gethsemane, just moments, hours maybe before he was arrested. And in that passage, he prays first for the disciples that he prays for all believers. Beginning in verse 20, Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. Speaking of the disciples, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that you may be as, they may be as one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus prayed that they would be united. Jesus prayed that they would be one, just as he and the Father are one. But notice here, there's an there's a, there's a implication of this. If we are united, if we are really one as Jesus desires for us to be one, if we are able to, to put aside our bitterness and anger, as Paul is encouraging us to do in Philippians, if we're able to do that, then the world will be able to know who Jesus is. The world will be able to look at our lives, look at our church, and see the light of Christ shining in us. And in doing that, they, the world will know that Jesus is real, that he is Lord. But it starts with us. Right? It starts with God working in our own lives, but then we need to then live that out in fear and trembling. Right? We need to live lives that honor and please him. And in doing so, we'll be able to make an impact in this world and in this community. Because people will be able to see our lives and see how God is working and you know, if people see that, they'll want to be a part of it. I really do believe that. So much of this world is about trying to fit in and be the same and, and just be uniform. But I, I really believe that if people see Christ in you, people see the light of God shining through you and in the way you live and the way you conduct yourselves, if you live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, then people want to be a part of that. You know, evangelism isn't just about going on a street corner and preaching on your soapbox, right? It's about living your life in a way that people see it and want to be a part of it. And that will open up opportunities to then point people towards Christ. And that's my prayer for us as we move forward together and live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I lift up uh, this church to you. I thank you for placing me here. 
Thank you for the opportunity of ministry that you've given me. And I pray, Lord, that I would be able to to lead in a way that honors you. But Lord, even more importantly, I pray that we would be able to come together in spiritual unity, that we would be able to be obedient to you and your word, that as we shine like stars, we'll be able to hold firmly to the word of life. Lord, and that, that as people see us, as people who have never maybe stepped in this church, maybe never known you, I pray that they would be able to see our lives, to be able to see this body of believers here in, in New Knoxville and notice that there's something different about us and want to be a part of it. And in that way, our, your light will shine forth from this place. In Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand and in closing sing number two, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen.